Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 379th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you by the American Health Information Management Association, also known as AHIMA. I'm Dennis Jones, sitting in this morning for the vacationing Chuck Buck, and joining me this morning as my co-host is the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated, and good morning, Erica. Dennis, welcome. Happy belated birthday to Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about patient-focused coding, and reporting our lead story will be Christy Pollard. Also on the broadcast will be Rose Dunn. Rose returns with another report on the revenue cycle. And Lori Johnson returns with her Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. And you have a Talk Back segment this morning. Yes. Terry Fletcher piqued my interest last week, and I am following up on her Critical Care Time segment. We have much news to report, and we begin with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to sign up for a free three-day trial to the ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcast Series. Click on the tab above or visit the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Dennis. And the low-income pool audits are hitting a Florida hospital, and hospitals facing disaster and more may be hit. The low-income pool, or LIP, is a funding pool designed to support health care providers that provide uncompensated care to Florida residents who are uninsured or underinsured. There are multiple states with similar programs. CMS approved LIP in 2015 as part of Section 11115 demonstration project, usually referred as a waiver, allowing Florida to change how it delivers Medicaid benefits in parts of the state from fee-for-service to managed care. During the transition to the new system, the LIP was created to help safety net hospitals, county health departments, and federally qualified health centers that treat Florida residents who are uninsured or underinsured. Complicating the issue is Florida's refusal to expand Medicaid. In 2015, CMS slashed LIP funding from $2 billion to $600 million a year under the former governor and current senator Rick Scott. What is CMS's position on LIP? CMS stated in an April 14, 2015 letter to Florida officials that it will apply three key principles when considering LIP's future. First is uncompensated care pool funding cannot be used to pay for health care for people whom the state could have covered through a Medicaid expansion. Two, Medicaid payments should not be used to support services provided to Medicaid beneficiaries and low-income individuals. Three, provider payments should be sufficient to ensure adequate provider participation in Medicaid, access to care for beneficiaries, and care coordination by managed care plans. Healthcare providers participating in the LIP submit lists of claims for which they have provided uncompensated care. Using the ratio of each provider's total uncompensated care, Florida pays each provider from the LIP, and CMS funds the lion's share of payments and federal matching funds. Oddly, Medicare allocates uncompensated care payments under essentially the same formula, paying what appear to be duplicate payments from the Medicare program. Jackson Health System may have wrongly included some amounts for ineligible patients and received hundreds of millions of dollars in Medicaid funds that Florida will have to refund to the federal government. According to a forthcoming audit by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, cited in a story first reported by Politico, auditors found that Florida incorrectly claimed costs for certain care 
for undocumented immigrants and prisoners who received outpatient care and the hospital admitted or underreported Medicare and Medicaid offsetting payments. Politico says that a draft of the HHS Inspector General audit found the Florida Medicaid program was overpaid between 2010 and 2014, $413 $436 million to Jackson Health. Thrown into this mix under the current administration, there's been an assault on the ACA, and Florida is backing an appeal, making its way to the Supreme Court to strike the ACA in its entirety. All the arguments against the lip become null and void if the ACA is struck down. In closing, this case highlights the complexity of simply striking down the ACA, giving the U.S. healthcare a Brexit with no deal of its own. And with that, back to you, Dennis. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, July 30th, and you're listening to the 379th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Please stand by. Plan to join 600 of your peers at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting, September 14th and 15th in Chicago. Join sessions and conversations covering CDI, revenue cycle, professional services, facility services, 2020 code updates, compliance, auditing, and innovation. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than this meeting. Attendees earn CEUs and CNEs, and all advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 codebook. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Here now with Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Senior Healthcare Correspondent Lori Johnson. Good morning, Dennis, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. July 28th was World Hepatitis Day. This year's theme was Invest in Eliminating Hepatitis. In 2015, approximately 257 million people were living with hepatitis B and 71 million were living with hepatitis C. Let's talk about the various types of hepatitis. Hepatitis A is a viral infection for which there is an immunization. It is transmitted person to person through fecal oral route, um, close personal contact, injections, or exposure to contaminated food or water. This condition is coded as B15.9 or B15.0 with hepatic coma. This is not a chronic condition. Hepatitis B is a viral infection that is transmitted when infected blood, semen, or other body fluids enter an uninfected body. This condition can be acute or chronic. It can be prevented through immunization. Chronic hepatitis B can lead to cirrhosis or liver cancer. Codes for hepatitis B are uh, unspecified B19.10, and if it's unspecified with hepatic coma, B19.11. Acute B is B16.9. With a delta agent, it's B16.1. And with a delta agent and with hepatic coma, B16.0. If it's acute with hepatic coma only, it's B16.2. Chronic is B18.1 and with the Delta agent B18.0. Hepatitis C is, is a blood-borne virus. For 70-85%, this condition becomes long-term chronic infection. There is not a vaccine for type C. The codes are type C, B19.20, 
with hepatic coma, B, 19.21. Acute is B, 17.10. Acute with hepatic coma, B, 17.11. And chronic, B, 18.2. Hepatitis D is uncommon in the U.S. It is transmitted through injection or mucosal contact with infected blood. There is no vaccine for this condition, and it is coded as specified type not elsewhere classified, or B17.8. Hepatitis E is an acute illness for which there is no vaccine. It is transmitted through ingestion of contaminated fecal matter. It is coded as B17.2. I think at this point, it's probably a good time to remember our good hand-washing techniques. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. I'm going to use Purell right now. Dennis? (laughs) Thanks, Erica, and thank you very much, Lori. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Rose Dunn has returned to the broadcast, and Rose joins us now for the Dunn Report. I was with a coding manager recently who shared that his annual increase would be partially based on collections. Of course, we both looked at each other and said, why? But then I reflected on it and said, why not? Yes, I know our HIM and coding staffs are not directly involved in dialing for dollars or checking the payer websites to see if claims have been adjudicated or queued up for payment. But HIM encoding can directly impact us getting paid for a claim in a timely manner. In prior sessions, we talked about coding denials and know that the best denial management program is denial prevention. But if we have a rejection or denial from a payer, the collections halt until we finish our rebuttals and a final determination is achieved. This means that we need to address rejections and denials timely. Each day we wait means that we cannot collect and the days and accounts receivable rise. During this session, I'm going to review just one common area where we impact collections, and please look to my article that will be posted later this week for three more specific areas. So the area we're going to discuss is coding delays. This is vacation season, and it's our responsibility as managers to ensure we have the resources in place to cover our staff's vacations. Of course, our first action is to ensure not everyone is off at the same week or two. But what sometimes happens is that no backup resources are arranged for, and the other staff are expected to work some overtime to keep their and some of the vacationing person's cases coded, or the vacationing person's work just sits there until that individual returns to work. So the vacationing person returns to a backlog and the next employee takes off for their vacation. The result, spiraling DNFC that by default delays collections. Recovering from this situation is not an overnight event. To avoid it, please identify a resource, either internal or external to the organization, at least 60 days in advance of the vacations and it needs to be someone who can provide coding support during the vacation season to keep DNFC at an acceptable level, collections coming through the door, and your CFO's blood pressure within normal limits. 
In summary, yes, collections should be in our evaluations because we are a contributor to the success or failure of the collections team. Next month, let's talk about Haste Makes Waste in segment eight. Done is done. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Rose. That was past president and chair of AHIMA, Rose Dunn. Rose is the chief operations officer for First Class Solutions. Dennis? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Rose. Coming up, a report on a mystery diagnosis code. Rhonda Buckholtz will unravel the mystery when she joins us in 60 seconds. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Are you planning to reach your career goals and position yourself as a leader in the industry by earning the CCS credential? Professionals with AHIMA's industry-regarded certified coding specialist credential demonstrate tested data quality and integrity skills and a mastery of coding proficiency. Consider AHIMA's virtual exam prep to guide you through all seven domains you need to master for the exam. Purchase the bundle and receive the on-demand webinar series, virtual interactive learning sessions, exam prep book, and the exam voucher, all for one low price. Learn more at ahima.org certification and plan to attend the October 17th virtual interactive learning session. This morning, our Tuesday focus is about a mystery diagnosis code and to unravel the mystery, Rhonda Buckholtz. For years, we've been talking with ICD-10 implementation and, and moving forward from it, what exactly was in a diagnosis code. We were worried about making the transition and having providers still use unspecified codes, so we spent a lot of time educating our providers on choosing codes that had the higher level of specificity um, to the point that we were querying them often. Um, then Guideline 19 came out, and Guideline 19 basically says, um, you know, the diagnosis code is um, chosen based on the provider's diagnostic statement um, and that their statement means the condition exists um, and, you know, and to back off on, on the queries a little bit, as long as the provider says it, right, um, the code assignment is not based on clinical criteria. Um, we had conflicting uh, information that was out there because at the same time, the OIG was releasing information about HCCs, um, risk adjustment programs that said the documentation needs to be there and the provider documentation has to support the diagnosis codes. So for years, we've been kind of going back and forth, query the provider, don't query the provider, um, and really pushing them to stop using the unspecified codes. Um, recently, I was doing contract review, and um, I found some language in, in some of the contracts by certain payers that uh, kind of shocked me a little bit. Um, so in, in the contracts and the amendments that are coming out, um, there are health plans that are putting language in provider contracts that basically state that if you get paid on a fee-for-service basis um, and uh, you submit a diagnosis code that hits risk adjustment and on audit it's found that your documentation doesn't support that uh, code, that diagnostic code, uh, then you forfeit your fee-for-service payment. And so what's really interesting is, you know, in the provider world, we've just been inundated with requests for uh, risk adjustment charts um, to, to validate and to go through all of that. From a provider standpoint, most of our providers don't get paid for those higher complexity conditions from patient. We're still fee-for-service. Um, so now to add insult to injury, we're having to uh, provide, you know, hundreds and hundreds of records at a time 
to, to validate. And if we don't have the most specific information in there that, that actually hits that code, simply choosing a wrong diagnosis code can now hinder your payment. And so um, that needs to really uh, be a focus for us as we're moving forward. Uh, and, and what I fear is when providers start seeing these take backs that we're going to go back, take a few steps backwards and have them start submitting unspecified codes so that they can't be held hostage to that type of language. The only money that we can actually get from the risk adjustment programs typically is the money that we charge for the records when we pull them and submit them to the health plans. Um, it's, it's not a fair situation for our providers in, in the outpatient marketplace. So I urge all of you guys to please uh, go check your contracts. Um, look at the language and the amendments that are in there because some of them also say that they use proprietary bundling um, software and that you uh, allow them to uh, reprice your claim based on the proprietary software without giving you access to that same bundling software or the edits that are available. So take a good hard look at your contracts and make determinations on who you really can afford to contract with moving forward. Specificity is always important. And I'm going to tell um, everyone, as the language gets uh, updated in your provider contracts, make sure that, that you're doing good education surrounding that. Um, and you know, work on your CDI. Query that provider. No matter what anybody else says, your documentation has to support the diagnosis codes that are, are selected. So you wanna make sure that you query that provider at the end of the day and work with them on their CDI efforts. Thanks, Rhonda. You know, the way I think about 19 is that you're allowed to code things, but that doesn't mean that you have to. Uh, it means that you should really make sure, you know, you should go along with the query um, guidance that says that if you think that something is not clinically valid, you should be querying. So I think that that's good advice that you just gave us. That was Rhonda Buckholt. Rhonda is the Chief Compliance Officer for Century Vision Global. Dennis? Thanks, Erica, and thank you, Rhonda. That was a great report. And you can read Rhonda's reporting on this very important topic in the ICD-10 Monitor News. This morning, our lead story is about patient-focused coding, and reporting our lead story this morning is Christy Pollard. Good morning. So did you happen to see the physician appeal letter that made social media rounds last week? A neurologist told the payer in no uncertain terms that their policy was going to kill his patient. The payer was denying payment of IVIG for Crest syndrome, and their policy apparently said that the patient must first fail steroid therapy. The doctor pointed out that the patient had several comorbidities that are contraindications to chronic steroid therapy, and he went on to say that their policy is, and I quote, guaranteed to save thousands of dollars because the patient will die and dead patients are cheap to treat. Now, once I was done cheering for the physician, because let's face it, who hasn't wanted to write a letter like that, I wondered about the data, the data that the insurance company had received so far. Particularly, I wondered if they even knew the patient had those chronic comorbidities. Were they ever reported? This article really solidified my stance that as coders, we're much more than transactional robots trying to get claims paid. We're storytellers who are conveying the patient's story in code. In the daily rush of getting claims coded and out the door, it's easy to forget our impact. After all, in most organizations, we don't look up patients by name. We either look them up by account number or select an account from a queue. 
And the result is that we look at our daily workload as a stack of transactions rather than what they really are, records of a patient's medical history and care. Each record is there because a human being walked into a hospital or another healthcare setting and someone took the time to write down what was happening to them. As coders, we don't process transactions. We summarize the patient's story and share it. And we don't just share that with payers. Coded data is shared with clearinghouses and agencies that use them to identify patterns to improve overall population health. Let me repeat that. Coded data is used to improve overall population health. If that last statement sounds like a big deal, it is. What you code matters. As I talk to coding auditors and perform coding audits myself, I continuously witness that ICD-10 CM diagnosis codes are not being coded according to the highest level of specificity or that codes are added or missed. The number one coding variance we see on coding audits is incorrect assignment of secondary diagnoses. Those are diagnoses that may not be critical in getting a claim paid, but are important in telling the patient's story. Oh, don't worry about that code. It doesn't affect payment. I've heard that a lot. Or does it? What about our aforementioned peel? How do we tell the patient's story without impacting what we can get through in a given day? I believe we waste precious time assigning codes that don't really matter to the patient's story while forgetting to code the ones that do. I call it the Goldilocks rule of coding. Don't code too much. Don't code too little. Code just right. The Goldilocks rule of coding is best applied when we become master storytellers. Master storytelling comes with an intimate knowledge of coding guidelines, with understanding of disease process, anatomy, and pharmacology. If you want to know more about my take on patient-focused coding and storytelling in codes, check out my article on ICD-10 Monitor. And as Gary Vaynerchuk said, storytelling is the game. It's what we all do. So go forth and tell a good story. Thanks, Christy. You know, it's interesting. When I talk to doctors, I tell them, tell the story and tell the truth. And I do believe that the coders are the ones who are translating the documentation into codes, and you are helping tell the story. I should be able to look at an abstraction and know exactly what happened to the patient without ever reading documentation, because if the codes are right, it tells the story. Excellent reporting. Thanks. That was Christy Pollard. Christy is a senior coding consultant for the Hagen Group. Dennis? You can read Christy's article in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesday, and that's Talk Back, featuring Dr. Erica Reamer. Thank you, Dennis. I've previously mentioned the emergency department documentation project I've been working on. Terry Fletcher's segment on critical care last week prompted this Talk Back. I decided that you listeners could benefit from our discussion about something I ran across in my review, so I wrote an article which hopefully will be posted today, and I'm doing this Talk Back. So while assessing cases billed at 99285, which is the highest level of service for emergency visits, I encountered a curious practice. Besides judging the quality of documentation, I was assessing for medical necessity. I found patients who met critical care criteria, which Terry gave a great explanation of last week. But the attestation asserted only 22 minutes of critical care time, for instance. If you don't cross a 30-minute threshold, you can't bill for critical care time. I wondered what the point was 
to attest to sub-30-minute time if you couldn't bill for it. I did see the utility of expressing that the patient met critical care criteria. This substantiates severity and complexity, and it certainly supports a 99285, the level 5, which is what you bill if you can't bill for critical care time. But there was another reason. Critical care time is additive. If I see a patient and spend 45 minutes with him, and my colleague spends another 45 minutes on the evening shift, cumulatively, we have 90 minutes, which is billed as a 99291, and a unit of 99292. This posed an interesting dilemma. If no one ever crosses the 30-minute threshold, but collectively the group did, can you bill 99291? I got differing opinions from my coding consulting peeps. I resorted to looking at CMS's manual publication 100-04, Transmittal 2997. They said, non-continuous time for medically necessary critical care services may be aggregated. Physicians of the same specialty within the same group practice bill and are paid as though they were a single physician. In a later section, they gave an example of intermittent and aggregated time of 10 minutes times 5 blocks equaling 50 minutes of continuous clock time. But then under section I, the transmittal said, the initial critical care time billed as CPT code 99291 must be met by a single physician or qualified NPP. I got stuck here for a while. Then I read on. Medicare payment policy states that physicians in the same group practice who are in the same specialty must bill and be paid as though they were the single physician. So this tripped me up again. I think they're trying to really say The physicians of the same specialty within the same group practice must build and be paid as though they are collectively a single physician. But that's not what it actually says. It actually says as though each were the single physician. So after some serious Googling, I found a presentation by a Mac. In their slide deck, they presented it as, critical care cannot be billed if less than 30 minutes was spent in a day by a single provider, emphasis here, slash, or group. So this ended ended it for me. My opinion is if multiple emergency physicians, or intensivists for that matter, who see the patient on a given encounter in the same calendar day are from the same billing group, they can add up smaller aliquots of critical care time. If collectively they exceed 30 minutes, a 99291 can be billed. If they are from a different group or at midnight is crossed, they cannot. Who ends up with the RVUs is a whole other story. So please check out my article in ICD-10 Monitor for the full story. Thanks, Erica. Hey, Erica, can you repeat, where's, where's a good place to find guidance on critical care um, issues and critical care billings? Was there, was there one place that you went to that you thought was a definitive source? CMS is the definitive source. So, you know, if you want opinions on how one 
actually is going to do Medicare critical care time, then, you know, CMS would be the place to go. Um, see, you know, the CPT, there's CPT uh, code books that also give the guidance for the specific codes as well. So either one of those is, is definitely the definitive sources. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. Uh, at this time, I'd like to announce the winner of our IPPS Palooza webcast giveaway. We'd like to thank everyone who took the time to sign up to win an on-demand 2019 Q2 ICD-10CM PCS coding clinic update. Our winner is Carol Kirtley from Taylor Regional Hospital in scenic Campbellsville, Kentucky. Thank you, Carol. We will be contacting you shortly by email. That's going to wrap up our 379th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and Eric and I would like to thank our panelists today, Rhonda Buckholtz, Rose Dunn, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Christy Pollard, and especially our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, no matter where you are, you can always listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us and give us a good review. I'm Dennis Jones, sitting in for the vacationing Chuck Buck. Thank you for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.